Uh, my name is Grady. I am the pastor here in Maricopa Springs. It's good to be with you guys. Man, what a beautifully appropriate psalm on the day of prayer for the persecuted church. Um, we really have no idea how blessed we are to be able to just come to church. We, we actually, we take church for granted, the fact that we can gather together. And in other countries, there are people who would love to be able to go to a public building to praise Jesus, uh, but they are instead behind bars. Um, yesterday, uh, before I pray for us and, and pray for the church as well, yesterday I was doing a wedding and uh, I was officiating, so I'm standing up front and I'm standing next to the groom and here comes the bride. And of course, my mind tends to go two places when I'm doing a wedding. First of all, it reminds me of my wedding and how precious that was. But the other place my mind goes is, this is a picture of Jesus and the church. He is the groom standing, waiting to be united to his bride, the church. What a beautiful picture that is. How lofty Christ Jesus views his church. And uh, Lord, forgive us for sometimes uh, considering the church with so light and airy a view. Uh, man, people all over the world would love to be gathered with us this morning praising Jesus. And uh, I hope that God gives us a better perspective of how precious in his eyes is his bride, the church. How beautiful in his eyes. How eager he is to be united to his church. Um, let me pray for us. God, we do continue to remember those who are suffering around the world for the sake of your name. God, we're inspired by them, we're challenged by their faithfulness, but Lord, we also lift them up to you. Our, our hearts are filled with gratitude that we are not in prison, that we are not being beaten, that we are not starved because of our faith in you. We give you abundant thanks for that. And we pray that you would strengthen those saints, Lord, that they would feel the power and the comfort of your presence, your spirit, in a palpable way. Lord, that they would endure whatever suffering they may be going through for the sake of your name. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful psalm, even this idea, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. God, would you be with your church? Would you keep her? Would you keep your bride until the day when we are united with you and we look forward to that day. What a beautiful, glorious day that will be. Lord, comfort, comfort your people, I pray. Bless us as we study your word. We thank you that around the world people are gathering on Sunday morning to give you praise and to study your precious words to us. Lord, would they give us life? Would they encourage us? Would they challenge us? Would they draw us closer to you, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, today we're going back into the Gospel of Luke. I would love for you to open your Bibles to Luke 17. We're just going to be in the Gospel of Luke for a few weeks before we get to Advent. Can you believe that? We are only a few weeks away from Christmas. Um, and we've been slowly chipping away at Luke over many months and uh, sometime we'll finish there. I hope you enjoyed our little excursus into the Protestant Reformation, our series Theology on Fire. If you weren't here for any of those weeks, I do encourage you to go back to our website. Uh, we have a podcast, or you can just listen to the audio online. 
Um, I, I enjoyed that time, and I, I hope it was edifying for you as well. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, right where we left off um, before we, we went into this theology on fire. Real quick, I don't know if I've told this story b- before, but um, John Calvin, who is one of the reformers, uh, he was ousted from the pulpit in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, left, was, was banished for a couple of years, and uh, when he finally returned, when he was allowed back in, he, the, the first Sunday back in the pulpit, he went right back to where he had finished preaching like five years before to just pick up and continue where he was going. So um, that's not to equate me with Calvin or anything like that, but we're just going to press on with Luke whenever we get the chance. Uh, there is so much going on in this passage of Scripture that what I want to do is read it and then read chunks of it together and, and sort of uh, explain it to you, tackle it together bit by bit. So let me read this long section of Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I know it's been a while since we were looking at Luke together, but one of the themes that we've encountered through this gospel is the kingdom of God. We've seen Jesus give all kinds of hints about the kingdom of God where it is, when it is, who it belongs to, what it is. A big part of this was way back in Luke chapter 13, if you can remember that far back. But it's been peppered all throughout the Gospel of Luke as we have made our way through this book. And I want to remind you of a very important idea that we have discussed, I would say repeatedly, that we've learned about the kingdom of God. And I've asserted this, the kingdom of God is wherever human hearts are are under the authority of Jesus. The kingdom of God is wherever human hearts are under the authority of Jesus. And I think this idea is really important because even today people still misunderstand the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say the kingdom of God is? Some things that 
we've maybe been told or, or people have thought? Is it the nation of Israel? Is it the nation of America? Is it evangelical Christianity as we specifically know it in the 21st century? Is it some mystical spiritual reality that exists somewhere out in the cosmos in some other dimension? Is it a political reality? Is it the modern Western world? Is it some utopian society that we're waiting to come upon planet Earth? Is it even an earthly reality at all when we talk about the kingdom of God? Now look at what Jesus says in verses 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I think Jesus says quite clearly, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that we will perceive with our eyes. The Pharisees, they were, uh, they were the watchmen for the kingdom of God. They were on the lookout for the kingdom of God to be ushered in. So it's only natural, therefore, then that they would be asking Jesus, like, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, then where is the kingdom of God? When is it coming and what will it look like? And I think Jesus says something that must have surely shocked them to the very core, something that must have utterly baffled them. He says, you're doing it wrong. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. It is not something that you should expect to be revealed in a tangible form. Rather, the kingdom of God is here and it is in the midst of you because the kingdom of God is everywhere human hearts are under the authority of Jesus. A kingdom of God, it is in fact a true reality, but it has a spiritual nature to it. It is a kingdom in which every heart that has been transformed by the grace of God belongs now, right now. So if you are a lover of Jesus, even though one day you will enter the kingdom of God in fullness, you are already in the kingdom of God, if you can, even if you cannot feel it or touch it or perceive it. Now the reason why this idea must have been particularly shocking for the Pharisees, maybe even distasteful to the Pharisees, is because the Jews were under the authority of Roman rule at this point in history. They were the subjects of Roman dominion. And their expectation was that when the kingdom of God came, it would come with a literal fulfillment of a kingdom that would overthrow the Romans. It would come with an army. For Jesus to say that the kingdom of God was in the midst of them flew in the face of their belief that the nation of Israel was going to be reestablished as a great kingdom on earth, the kingdom of God. They simply could not conceive of this idea that the kingdom of God could be in the midst of them even while the Roman authorities were still ruling and reigning over them. They fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the kingdom of God. So they were on the lookout for a socio-political king, a new David, who would live in a palace, who would sit on a throne, who would raise up an army, who would rule over a country and a plot of land. But in looking for that, they had set their sights far too low in thinking that the Messiah would be primarily concerned with a little piece of geography or a single nation amongst his creation. 
Even as we read the Old Testament, if you read it carefully, you see it's very clear, even in books like Deuteronomy, which I know is everyone's favorite, and Psalms, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, that even the promised land, even the nation of Israel, was meant to be a picture of the people of God, a picture of a kingdom where God ruled over people, not just over a nation-state. The king of creation was determined to be the lord of human hearts, not just the lord of some, again, little geographic area. And this is why when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, it just did not compute for the Pharisees. They simply did not understand. Because the kingdom of God was not a physical place. Rather, the kingdom of God exists everywhere that human hearts are under the authority of Jesus. So the kingdom of God began its true invasion in the days of Jesus at his first coming, and it continues even now more and more as more people around the globe submit to Jesus as Lord, turn in their hearts to him and bow their knees and confess him as the Messiah. And the invasion that, is now, that started then and is ongoing now will one day be completed at the return of Christ, when he comes to claim what rightfully belongs to him. So understand, where is the kingdom of God? Well, it is here in America, and it's in the Muslim Middle East, and it's also in China, in Israel, and Russia, and Latin America. It is every place where people call Jesus Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That is where the kingdom of God is. Now, understand, though, this does not mean that The world is universally in the kingdom of God, rather that the kingdom of God is universally in the world because it exists everywhere that people are under the authority of Jesus. Do you catch the distinction there? Do you see the difference? It's not that everyone everywhere belongs to the kingdom of God, but rather everywhere you go, you will find people whose hearts love Jesus. I remember being in Khartoum, Sudan, many, many years ago, and uh, a city that is predominantly Muslim. And I was there with my dad, and we were doing a conference with Christians, and here in this city that must be hundreds of thousands of people, here were 15 Christians who loved Jesus, and there was the kingdom of God. Look at verses 22 through 23. And Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Now there's a a subtle shift here. I think we have to pay very close attention to what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God has come, but the days of the Son of Man are not yet come. Look closely here. He talks about the kingdom of God and also the days of the Son of Man. Jesus has shifted here from present tense in verses 20 to 21 now to future tense in verses 22 to 24. We know this because if we look at verse 25, he says, but first. So he's going to tell us again about something in the future, but right now he's talking about uh, present tense. Or I'm sorry, future tense, forgive me. So the days of the Son of Man, those are the days when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the Son of Man will rule over his creation visibly from his throne. The kingdom of God has come, and it is coming. Because wherever 
the people of God are under the authority of Jesus, then the kingdom of God is there in their midst. But understand, the days of the Son of Man are not yet here because we are waiting for Christ to return. And before those days come, something must first happen. For now, Christ's kingdom is not yet fully established because in this age, Scripture teaches us, the world remains under the curse of sin and even under the authority of Satan himself. Now, why is this so important? I think this is important because Jesus tells us, he warns us. He says, you're going to long for the day of the Son of Man. You're going to long for Christ to be present like he was among the disciples when he will rule in fullness. And because that desire will be strong in your hearts, you might be easily led astray. And we see this from time to time, don't we? Christians are frequently caught up in claims that Christ is coming when certain people rise up to proclaim, look, there he is, or here, he's coming, wrongly identifying the kingdom of God with some or another earthly kingdom. I think this has happened with our nation, America, at different times in history. And understand, I firmly believe that America is truly the greatest nation on earth when it comes to the freedoms that it affords people and the morals upon which it was built. But if someone says, look here, Christ is the king of America, and through this nation he will rule all the other nations, I tell you, don't be deceived. Don't go out. Don't follow them. Because understand, God is not concerned with singular nations. His plans are far more ambitious than that. His goals are far more glorious. He intends to rule the world as Lord and God of every tribe and tongue and nation as he rules over the hearts of people around the globe. And so if you're looking for some kind of Christian nation as the manifestation of the days of the Son of Man, don't fall into that trap like the Pharisees. It's time to put that dream to bed. Because the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is already in the midst of you. It is in every human heart on every continent where people profess Christ as Lord. Okay, but if this is the case, then you might wonder, well, how will I know when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness? How will I know when the days of the Son of Man are here? Grady, if you're saying that the kingdom of God has already come and it's already here, even though it's not yet fully uh, instituted for our eyes to perceive, and yes, that is what I'm saying, Grady, you're saying that Jesus is Lord here and now, even if the, son of, the days of the Son of Man are yet to come. Yes, I'm talking about an already and not yet reality. But Grady, if that's the case, how are we going to know for sure when the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness? Is it possible we might miss it? How will we know when the Son of Man has come to reclaim his kingdom? Well, look at verse 24. Let me read it. It says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Here is a, a metaphor, a description of the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is not talking literally here like a flash of lightning. He's using that imagery because I think it's something that we can all understand, right? Two things. When lightning strikes where you are, you don't miss it. During the monsoon season, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I love to sit out on my backyard. Our house faces south, 
And you can see down in Tucson the rain that teases us up here, the rain that we almost never get. And there's these clouds in the evening at dusk, and they're just filled with flashes of lightning again and again and again. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And you cannot help but perceive the lightning when it strikes. I mean, maybe you could get away with it when it's at a distance, but if you're close enough, when the lightning strikes, you see it, you hear it. If you're close enough, you you might even feel it, right? You cannot miss the lightning when it comes. But neither can you predict when and where it will come. I mean, I guess if you're so foolish as to stand out there with like a metal flagpole, maybe. But apart from those kinds of bizarre circumstances, even in a storm, you don't know when or where the lightning will hit. Recently, there was one of these predictions, maybe you heard about it, that the world was going to end. I think it was like September 20th or something like that. And I remember coming across a secular newspaper article that said that some Christian guru was predicting that the world would end on that date. Was it the 20th? Does anybody remember? 23rd. Okay, thank you. And I came across this article and I was so mad because this guy who was claiming to be some Christian guru who had worked out the the details, somehow he knew, he was just making all of us look like idiots, right? Because what's the date today? The world is still going. Obviously, he was wrong, and none of us should be surprised by that. Jesus says clearly on a number of occasions, we cannot know the hour, the moment in which the Son of Man will return. Like you cannot predict the moment in which the lightning will flash across the sky. Now, maybe we can see a storm on the horizon, but that still doesn't tell us when and where the lightning will strike. But don't worry. Don't worry. I promise you that you will not miss it when it happens. Just like when the lightning strikes the tree in your backyard, you will not miss it. I promise you. Now we get to verse 25, and Jesus does something here a little bit confusing, which is why I said we have to look very carefully here at his words in this passage of Luke. He shifts back to the present tense. I think he's been talking about future tense, and now he shifts back to the present tense. Verse 24, he's talking about when he returns, which is a future time. But in verse 25, we get this signal with the word, but first, he tells us that there is an important event that must happen first. Let me read it. But first, he, that's the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus is telling his disciples that before Christ can return, he must suffer, he must die. He must be buried. He must rise. And what you need to understand at this point is that there is no kingdom of God without the cross. There is no kingdom of God without the cross. The only way for God to tame the radically ruined hearts of men and at the same time uphold the holiness of his name is through bloodshed. Do you understand that all through history, if we go back and we look at essentially every single kingdom that has ever risen to power, every kingdom has been established through bloodshed. The American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, just to name some of the modern ones, but you can go all the way back to Assyria, Rome, every nation, when kingdom clashed against kingdom for a new kingdom to come, tragically, It did so through bloodshed. But notice the uniqueness of the kingdom of God. Look at this. 
Does it come through the bloodshed of man? Does it come through wars? Does it come through our death and our suffering? No. See, the grace and the goodness of our God is that although man has rebelled against him, God chose not to shed the blood of man to establish his kingdom. He chose instead to shed his own blood to bring about his kingdom. And by the very nature of that blood, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdom. Every kingdom established by the bloodshed of man will perish to history. But the kingdom of God established by the blood of Christ will be forever. Before I go any further, I want to park here for a moment so you don't miss this. Please don't miss this because as we go on, the intensity of the coming of the Son of Man that day that is in the future is going to ratchet up quite a bit as we continue to read. And if we head there too fast, we might not realize, we might not let it sink in just how gracious our God truly is. You are invited into this kingdom, the kingdom where the grace of God rules all of creation. And your entrance ticket into that kingdom, if I can be so crude, is the blood of Christ which atones for your sins. The revolution of this kingdom has already come, and it is coming, and that fact changes everything for mankind. The fact that Jesus was rejected by his generation, given over to be crucified, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again, means that you can be part of that kingdom without further bloodshed, without your own bloodshed, because it's been laid on Christ on your behalf. His blood has earned you the right to become a subject of his kingdom. All that's required then of you is to place your life in his hands, to trust him, to bring your heart under his authority. Now as we read on and we look at the rest of the verses in our text, we're going to see Jesus switches back to the future tense again to describe what the coming of the Son of Man will be like when he returns for the final time to claim his kingdom. Let me read verses 26 through 30. Again, Jesus gives us a metaphor. He says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now I think Jesus is getting back to the initial question of verse 20, telling them what it will be like when the fullness of the kingdom of God comes. That is, the days when the Son of Man actually arrives. He is not telling us what the kingdom of God will be like, but rather how the kingdom of God will come upon us. And what's the familiar feature between both of these stories, Noah's Ark and Sodom? I think if we simplify it, the answer is to say that nobody escaped from the judgment of the flood or the destruction of Sodom. Nobody even saw it coming. You know, of course, there was the exception of Noah and his family and Lot, but for the most part, everybody fell under that judgment. Nobody knew that it was coming upon them. And when Jesus comes, it will not be something that people expect. 
I confess I don't understand all of biblical pro- uh, prophecy. You know, I, I have my opinions on the matter uh, about how and when Jesus will return. But I'm prone to think that it'll be like a Tuesday after lunch. You know, like the most innocent, inconspicuous moment. People will be like, wow, I didn't see that coming. We don't know, but people will not be prepared. That much we know. So stop for a second here as well and consider the implications of these verses. Jesus compares his coming to the flood of the world and the utter destruction of Sodom. Both events which came suddenly without warning and brought severe judgment on those who rejected God so that none survived is the implication. Do you understand then that if what Jesus says here is true, then we are running out of time quickly. You are running out of time. Every day that passes brings us one day closer to the day when Christ will return. Are you prepared? Are you ready for Tuesday lunchtime? I mean, seriously, are you prepared? While his returning should cause our hearts to leap for joy that our king is even now coming, shouldn't our hearts also melt with fear and trembling for those that we know and love who don't yet know Jesus? We are running out of time to share with them the good news of Christ, his grace, his mercy, the cross, his blood. This is the age when God has chosen to stay his wrath towards mankind so that all who turn to him might be saved from their sins. But the clock is ticking on this age. Scripture calls it the last age, the last days. And I only want to remind you that if you hold to the historic Christian faith, then you believe, like Jesus, that those who do not now know Jesus, Christ as Lord, will be destroyed when he comes as the Son of Man to bring the fullness of his kingdom. So I beg you to ponder that for a second. Don't let that fly by. The neighbor that you walk by The friend that you have at work, the family member who you hold back in pointing them to Christ, in light of the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ, in light of the imminent nature of his return, in light of the holiness of his judgment on that day, what could possibly cause you to keep your mouth shut about the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ to those who don't yet know him? We are running out of time. May the Spirit of God make us bold to tell people that the age of grace is coming to an end, but that there's hope in Jesus for those who give their lives to him. Let's finish up with verses 31 to 37. Let me read these. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, just so you do remember. She did look back, and she perished. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. 
And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I think this is a text that some people would uh, use to support the idea that when Jesus returns, Christians will be raptured. They'll disappear from the scene of judgment before the tribulation. That's a, a view that uh, was sort of popularized again today in the, the Left Behind books. Um, I don't have time to get into the different views on uh, the end times here, nor do I think that discussion would really be all that profitable in this context because there's other things that I want to draw your attention to. But I do want to say that I don't think that this uh, text is a good text to support the rapture. And here's why. I, I don't think the wording of the context allows for us to see it that way. Okay? If we go back to the original question and the original answer, I, ho- I-, I hope to kind of show you what I mean here. Jesus is asked, when will the kingdom of God come? And he says, the kingdom of God is already here. It's in the midst of you. Then he tells us a little bit about what that kingdom will look like when it does come in its fullness on the day in which Christ returns. And now I think at this point, Jesus is actually circling back to the original question to remind his hearers that you must keep your focus on the kingdom of God not on the kingdoms of this world, right? Remember, they were looking for a worldly kingdom. Jesus says, you're doing it wrong. You need to look for a kingdom where God himself rules over the hearts of men. Take your focus off the material nature of this world and look to a spiritual kingdom to come. And so I don't think that we should see these verses as literal. Jesus has been talking in metaphor. I don't think that This is a literal support. Uh, I think there are places where you can support that argument. I just don't think this is one of them. Because even the examples he gives in verses 34 and 35, uh, they don't really go together, right? Look at this. One occurs at night. He says, two will be sleeping, one will be taken, the other won't. Then he says, two will be grinding, one will be taking, the other won't. Well, one of these occurs at night. You don't grind your food during nighttime right? So I don't think he's talking literally here. Jesus is speaking metaphorically, just like he has used lightning as a metaphor, or Noah as a metaphor, or Sodom as a metaphor. So I think the key to understanding these verses is in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I think what Jesus is doing is making a sharp distinction here between those who are already in the kingdom of God as it exists here and now in the midst of us and those who are not in the kingdom of God. Outwardly, there may not be much of a distinction between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who are not. They may be stay-at-home mothers or they may be bankers. They may be librarians or stockbrokers. They may sleep in a suburban community like Maricopa or an urban setting like New York City. They may do manual work for their income or service work for their income. They may even actually sit side by side in the same church. These people are all the same outwardly, but inwardly. One person in each set belongs to the kingdom of God because their hope is in that kingdom. And another belongs to the kingdom of this world because their hope is in this world. One of these people sees his life only in material terms. 
that the belongings in his house are all that are important to him, so that the preservation of his life in this life is the most important thing. Seeking desperately then to preserve this life because it's all that they have, Jesus says they will lose it. Now, in contrast to the other individual whose heart belongs to the kingdom of God doesn't look back. They don't take their gaze off of Jesus. They don't seek after any life in this life, only the life that is the kingdom to come. And therefore, when Christ returns, they won't lose anything. They will only have the fullness that they have been waiting for. They will not lose life They will receive life. So look, I think Jesus brings us full circle from verses 20 to 21, then to 33 to 37. And if we had eyes to see the spiritual world that is in fact all around us, what we would perceive is that there are people that even as they go about their responsibilities in their life right now, they are truly living in the kingdom of God. I pray that to you awaiting the return of your king, with your mind thinking about the bride coming down the aisle to meet the groom, Christ. For those people, the kingdom of God is is in their midst. It's here and now. Conversely, if we had eyes to see the spiritual world already all around us, we would see, I think, the terrifying sight of the vultures already circling over the hearts of people all around us. These people are the living dead, without hope in this world because they are trying desperately hard to save their lives without grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be a terrible vision to see? So let me conclude with this, just a reminder. The kingdom of God is everywhere that the hearts of men and women are under the authority of Jesus. So first, I beg you to consider your own life. You are at church, yes, but are you in the kingdom of God? Is your heart really submitted to Jesus as king? If so, then rejoice with the answer that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Be joyful, be encouraged. By losing your life in this life, you will gain life eternal for the sake of Christ, your king. And if your life is not submitted to the gentle care of Jesus, then I pray, I pray that for your sake, God would open the eyes of your heart to see the vultures circling overhead and to hear the invitation to come to life eternal in Christ. Second, then, I beg you to consider the lives of others. Too many will perish on the day of the coming of the Son of Man. And I think we will be filled with joy at the return of our king. But I wonder if there won't, for just a moment, first be weeping and mourning over the fact that we didn't have more courage to proclaim the love of God to the lost that we knew in this life. You know what Jesus says to his disciples? He says, the harvest is plentiful. The problem is not that people out there are not interested in knowing Jesus. The problem is that there are not enough workers going out to share that good news. And so I pray, may God make this church a place where people long to bring others into the kingdom of God 
that they might find this life in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this life. We thank you that the kingdom of God has come and it is in the midst of us already. That by surrendering our hearts to your authority, we have already entered your eternal kingdom. Lord, give us eyes to see that truth. But Lord, I pray too that we would have eyes to see that the church is on a mission to fill up the kingdom of God. That it is our joyful responsibility to chase away the vultures and appoint people to your grace. Lord, would you make us bold against the enemy to proclaim Christ as the risen Lord? Lord, we want to be workers in this harvest. And I think about our city here, Maricopa. The field is ripe. The harvest is plentiful. God, would you make us workers for your glory, for the sake of your kingdom? Would you allow us to understand the hope that we have been given so that we are courageous to share that hope with those that we know who are lost? And Lord, for your kingdom, for your sake, for your glory, would you reap a great harvest? Would we see hearts turn to you for grace and forgiveness? And would we be encouraged to know that the kingdom of God is here already in the midst of us? In Christ's name we pray, amen.